Hello and welcome to X-Winging It. I'm one of your hosts, Brock Wilbur. And I'm Alex Kane. Uh, this is our show about Star Wars video games, uh, the history of them, and how a lot of them got nuked uh, in, the, in the retconning of the universe. Uh, we're bringing the stories of some of those games to you, uh, mostly so you don't have to play them. Uh, I am a kind of fan of Star Wars, and Alex is the biggest fan of Star Wars, and that is <laughs> the dynamic of this show. Have I explained the show? Sufficiently, Alex. I think you did. Yep. Uh huh. So uh, today we're taking a look at. Uh, we did two games uh, already that are from basically ninety five, ninety six. They're great games from a very specific time, and we realized that uh, we can't just stay in nineteen ninety six forever, which is a huge disappointment to me. Uh, Music wise, uh, that's that's where I would prefer to live. <laughs> uh, so today we thought uh, we would do something a little different. This will be a much shorter episode because normally we're focused on a lot of the story. Uh, elements of a thing, but this one will probably be more Alex talking about the historical elements. We went back to the very first Star Wars video game, Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back from 1983 for the Atari. Uh, Alex, do you want to tell the people what the Atari was? Yeah, so the Atari 2600, or the VCS, as I guess it was probably called at the moment, So, and, and also it was on Mattel's in television as well, which is basically like, um, you know, their, their sort of competitor with a really wonky controller that I've never actually messed with, but so the Atari 2600 was sort of the first home video console that you could... Um, take a cartridge with a label on it and a game and, you know, slot it into your machine and then, you know, change what you were playing. Right. So, uh, before that Atari had got big with, um, putting pongs in arcades and bars and things across the country. And then they, they made the home edition of pong that people could play in their living room. And then the Atari 2600 was kind of the thing that allowed them to, you know, bring the idea of you can have any software in your home that you want and, and play on your television, right? And play things like Pac-Man uh, with, you know, a joystick and a button. Um, and, and these were not complicated games, right? These were very, very crude. If you've never played an Atari 2600, um, you know, I was born in the 80s. Um, I grew up with an NES and even back then I had, you know, the Pong machine and the 2600 and they, they felt like ancient tech, you know, even in the early nineties, these things were, you know, primitive, uh, you know, sort of, I, I have a picture of me playing, uh, space invaders with my dad with the Intellivision. So, uh, Amazing. I, I, I grew up with that wonky controller as you call it. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a phone, doesn't it? It looks like an early cell phone or something. Yes. <laughs> uh, with, with like a giant knob rather than an analog joystick. It has like a knob, right? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, these games, um, they're, they're super cool to, to go back and look at now. Um, but they sure make you appreciate something like, uh, shadows of the empire or dark forces, or uh, Rogue Squadron in a whole new light. You know, if you think that early 3D graphics were crude, you know, go back and, and uh, you know, find a browser version of The Empire Strikes Back um, from 1982, 83. Um, and this thing, um, it's super beautiful, um, but it's also re- incredibly difficult, right? It's, uh, you know, it makes you appreciate the difficulty of the IG-88 boss battle right it's uh it's a whole different <laughs> ball game when when all you've got really is your own your own skill and you know one button 
is all you've got standing between you and, and instant death, right? Uh, so the game itself here is is actually just one scene from Empire Strikes Back. It is the the Planet Hoth sequence uh, with the Imperial Walkers and Luke Skywalker with his, his speeder. Uh, and it is just that loop in a sequence. Uh, and so basically what you've got is that you've got your little ship uh, and it's basically a dot on the screen. It shoots other dots uh, and there is an endless wave of Imperial Walkers heading your way, uh, which they look more like a squid than an <laughs> Imperial Walker. It's just this... It, it gets into the iconography of a thing because uh, there's there's so very little in this world that I could look at the, this accumulation of pixels and be like, I recognize what that is supposed to be. Uh, and an Imperial Walker, I'm like, yeah, 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 I know that that's what that's supposed to be. But there's no reason that I should have that information beyond the iconography of, of what this is. Uh, and so your little snowspeeder runs around and you try to kill as many of these walkers as you can. Uh, each one takes about 48 hits to destroy, or uh, there can be a little flashing light uh, that pops up. And if you manage to hit that light, you destroy it in one, which is uh, from the notes from the designer uh, inspiration that he took from the Death Star. He was like, you know what? Why, why don't all uh, Imperial vehicles just have like one dumb exhaust port uh, that can blow them up? And he's like, sure. Why not? Why not them too? So you have this sort of, uh, infinitely looping landscape behind you which is gorgeous and, and makes use of colors that I don't remember I don't associate a lot of these it's it is it is very abstract like I would love to buy a poster of this like it looks like something that you'd hang on the wall uh and yes. and your little snow speeder you can take a couple of hits and then you explode you have a couple of lives uh and and the thing that adds a little bit of difficulty or or strategy to this I guess is that you have a base that you can land at uh, and if you land at your base, you can repair your ship. But while you're repairing your ship, that doesn't prevent the walkers from, like, shooting at you. So, like, there is a sense of panic when you're like, uh, I got to make a choice here about what to do. Um, and then you sort of keep going. And the, the game ends when uh, either you've run out of snow speeders or uh, all of the wa a walker has reached uh, the right side of the screen. Uh, which there there is a lot of space here to play with. And one of the things that blew me away about firing this up is that it is a fast game. Like uh, it is it is just so it it, it feels like uh, the speed of something like Tempest or something. And it's not that it's not that it's necessarily it has to be faster than anything. It's that uh, the way that the landscape moves behind you and the way that the the walkers are spaced out. It just feels like you're covering a lot of ground very quickly, like almost too fast. Like it is a disorienting amount of speed and you really have to you don't have a way of slowing down without reversing direction. Uh, so there is there is some fun uh, mechanics with that to play with that, that adds some difficulty in, in trying to figure out how to avoid missiles and how to how to really put your thing together. Uh, Alex, what did you think of this? <laughs> so, so it was released the same year as Activision's Chopper Command. I, I spent a lot of time trying to remember what the name of that damn game was. And uh, they, they both, both those games are like side-scrolling shoot-em-ups uh, for the most part. And they, they both allow you to move incredibly fast for a game of that age. You know, like um, Chopper Command probably even more so. But, um, but yeah, you, you move incredibly fast in the snow speeder. Um, it's really funny that in the movie, you know, Luke 
says like very early on in the battle like you know that armor's too strong for blasters we're gonna have to you know use the tow cables so naturally this is a game about you know shooting the atats with your blasters and you know and and luke was just dead also wrong. when did when did luke figure out had like the strength of various shields he is still just a farm boy i don't understand how he's the one that's like i know the the width of like imperial whatever made up uh, unobtainium uh yeah <laughs> yeah well you know he he had plans right to go off to the imperial academy before he found out that like um right like he he talks about the academy and and as far as i know he he met the imperial academy just to get off tatooine right and and then biggs biggs had done that and then switched sides to the rebellion if i recall correctly and then and so, the, you know, there's maybe this idea that... Uh, I love having this show with you. I never caught that. Of course, I, I just assumed the Academy was flight school somewhere. Of course, he was going to join up. Oh, my God. I, that's I, so could be, I could be wrong about this, but I've always... I, I'm pretty sure that the idea was Luke and Biggs both had this dream of going off and joining the Imperial Academy because they had this amazing, you know, fascist flight school. And then Biggs <laughs> flipped sides. And so it's like a, you know total cosmic coincidence that um you know they they wind up on the rebellion and uh so it's possible that luke was like you know a little fanboy of uh, imperial um you know like designs right because you know i don't consider myself someone who practices the ideals and and beliefs of the empire the first order but damn their shit's really cool right like their ships and their their walkers i would love to drive a walker around uh in the snow right so i mean it's possible I like that, that Luke you're the had guy that. that's like, I would sign up for fascism because I want to drive big truck. Give me the big truck. Exactly. I want to drive the truck. I mean, that must <laughs> they be. They have the better truck. Their truck is bigger. That must be like the the idea, right? Because like those those weren't clone troopers anymore. Those were like people who signed up to be stormtroopers. So it must have I, been. I mean, I absolutely buy it because it's it's uh, it is of course the inciting incident in Solo. Uh, I mean, he kind of accidentally stumbles into signing up there, but like, absolutely, yeah. You you to be to become a pilot, you go to the academy, and I guess there is the one academy because it's fascism. There is the one <laughs> for everything. Uh, yeah, boy, that makes a lot of sense. I want to see the the alt. I, I I on this podcast, I will always buy your reading because you know character names, and I do not. Uh, but this is, I do now want to see like the version of like Luke goes to to school. Uh, Luke goes to Nazi school uh, and uh, and that version of, of, of Skywalker's journey that uh, he just winds up working under Darth Vader. And one day he's like, hey, I'm your dad. And he's like, cool, we are on the same side and there is no conflict here. <laughs> I'm going to have to crack open. You know, I've got the like 1976 novelization sitting here somewhere. I'm going to crack that open and see how much that novelization said about like the Imperial Academy, because I'm, I'm pretty sure that that idea was definitely there in the old days. And then of course, uh, you know, sort of faded out as subsequent versions of the story got told. And, and obviously we need to bring this back. We need to bring back the idea that Luke was totally on board for, he was down for whatever to get on yeah. tattooing. Just like farming just sucks that bad. And uncle Owen is just that much of a dick. Um, <laughs> Which is funny because his aunt is like the sweetest woman in the entire Star Wars universe. Like Aunt Beru is like, you know, she's a better mentor than Yoda in a lot of ways, I'm sure. Um, but uh, we didn't get really to find out because, uh, you know, they, they cooked her and Uncle Owen. So, you know. Um, the, 
Yeah. I, do you have that action figure? No, I don't have that action figure. I, I need an Uncle Owen and Aunt Brew action figure because uh, I do love both of those characters. But uh, no, I don't have any merch with them. Nope. <laughs> Uh, so I, I found, uh, over at, uh, retrogamer.net, they have an interview with the guy that made, uh, the game and he yep. was basically hired by Parker brothers. Uh, he had just finished doing like, uh, kids today will not remember, uh, sort of handheld games, uh, which were these goddamn dinky little <laughs> digital, uh, things that like you, you basically sold at the checkout line at Walmart. Uh, and it was always like they were basically branded as one of the big popular games, like here's Street Fighter or something. But you could basically move your character to two places and he could punch the same guy over and over again. Uh, this guy had just finished making the sort of handheld electronic version of Monopoly, mm-hmm. which that does not sound like a thing that fits onto that sort of device. Like, I, I, I don't know if they ever released it or not. I'm going to have to look that one up later. But I'm just like, what what does that game look like? Because that's way yeah. too complicated. To, I, I can't even imagine boiling that down to, I don't know, maybe you just keep rolling a dice. Like, it's just a dice sim. Uh, anyway, they hired him to make this video game. Uh, and he'd never made a video game before. So over the course of five months, he taught himself the programming for it. I was working on it, and basically Parker Brothers uh, went to LucasArts, and they, everyone was like, yeah, 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 this is, uh, obviously this will sell. And they're like, what are we going to do? And they're like, why don't we use just this one iconic scene? And that was actually pitched to them by the marketing department, because they're like, it's something that we can do in the TV ads. And Alex just sent me the TV ad for this game. Would you like to explain what that looks like? Oh, yeah. Um Basically, they they show you know the intersperse footage of the Battle of Hoth from the Empire Strikes Back with uh, this dude who looks exactly like Mark Hamill. You know, he's probably like Mark Hamill's cousin after going to the barber. Central and getting, casting, Mark Hamill. Yes. Yeah, he doesn't Same necessarily haircut. look that much like him, but he did get like the Rachel version of he got the Luke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exact same haircut. Um, you know, and that the big goofy, you know, Mark Hamill, nineteen eighty smile, uh, which everybody loves. Like, and, and it's it's a it's a beautiful commercial, and it like the version that I saw on YouTube was shot like footage of a um, what do you call it? Like a a CRT TV, like the TVs that we grew up with that are yes. are sort of bulbous <laughs> and and convex and and not high def, and uh, that aesthetic is kind of fun to look at because. That's definitely, if you played a 2600 sort of growing up, um, you know, 20 years ago, that's that's what it would have looked like. So, um, yeah, I don't know. There's some uh, cheesy ad copy in the, the the commercial, too, where they're like, you know, the force was with Luke. Will it be with you? Blah, blah, blah. Parker Brothers. And uh, it, it's funny to note that Atari also pitched Lucasfilm on, on their version of what an Empire Strikes Back game would be, and they went with parker brothers so it's sort of like the equivalent of like nintendo or sony saying like hey you know lucasfilm we've got this great idea for an empire strikes back game and and then being like now nah, we're gonna give it to uh you know epic games who did fortnite or something you know like the the smaller um you know and, and the competition in a way but the the third party um developer instead um, I also read that same Retro Gamer article, and it's it's amazing. Um, RetroGamer.net. It's funny 
like Atari tended to stretch themselves too thin and put like one developer on a project, right? Like sort of ET was famously <laughs> developed by one guy. Right. And this, they had a game designer oh, uh, for, for the younger listeners who might not know, uh, the ET cartridge uh, is, is, has its own uh, great background. There's a, a, an excellent documentary about it on uh, Hulu. Uh, basically they thought E.T. was going to be this huge mega success because obviously the film was a mega success. So before the movie, it, it's it's one of the first times that a movie and game came out like at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the game that they made is unplayable. It is, it, it is not the worst video game in history as it is often called, but it is really bad. And I remember growing up with it uh, and just spending hours being like, I don't understand. Like you die almost instantly. You just keep falling into holes. You can't see nothing makes any, any goddamn sense. So, uh, Atari had something like a million copies of it that they didn't know what to do with. So they, there was a long running, like rumor, like a urban legend that they buried a million copies in a landfill somewhere. And, uh, and two, three years back, somebody went out and found that landfill and dug them all up. Uh, so that's, yep. Atari game over. It's a, it's great documentary. (laughs) Yep. I do, I do miss the time that we could just bury our mistakes. Yes. That feels like a very <laughs> 80s move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so that, that year that the E.T. thing happened was 82, around the same time that this game was getting made. And uh, and basically at that, that period in history, one person made a video game. You know, it wasn't like 700 people at Bungie making Destiny 2 or whatever and bringing on other studios to help them. It was one guy in a room, not sleeping, um, you know, <laughs> making which a is, game Which by is himself. exciting about the games industry because we've seen this arc where, like, the first games were one person, and then it became teams of three, and then it becomes teams of a hundred. And we're now back to the place that one person can make a game again, like Stardew Valley, made by a single person, yeah. things like that. And, yep. and I like that I like that arc of games that, like, uh, we, we reached a point a few years back here where people were like, what if we didn't have a thousand people working on, on dance moves? Uh, and we're yep. just like, I'm going to go make the thing that I, I care about. Yep. And so Parker brothers probably sort of, uh, helped that idea of like compartmentalization, right? Cause they, so they had a board game designer, a guy who was not, you know, he wasn't a software engineer, um, like Sam Kelman, I believe his name was. And so it was his responsibility to sort of design the idea, you know, the, like do the game design for this. And then the guy who did all the programming and animation was Rex Bradford. And he was the guy who had like sort of reverse engineered the Atari 2600, like architecture, if you will, to, to figure out how to even make a game for this console that, you know, Parker Brothers didn't make the Atari, you know, Atari did. So, um, and he called it a baptism of fire. It was five months of nonstop work. Um, so there, there was split credit in the sense that you had the Sam Kelman guy coming up with the game design ideas, but then it was sort of up to Rex Bradford to, to figure out how the hell to get that done. And looking and back... And there's this excellent quote from him about uh, the thing that we have sort of brought up earlier. And the quote is... Uh, this was uh, this was something that the uh, oh uh, the 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 marketing department was uh, adamant that they needed uh, to rope the walkers with the with the rope to, mm-hmm. to cause them to crash. 
and Rex had to explain the constraints of memory on the system. Uh, this was something the marketing folks were quite adamant about, and I diffused one tense meeting by stating that I would write the basic game first, and then we would see if we could fit it in later. It never got done. Obviously, the sprites were already in use, and it would have been pretty tough to do any sort of horizontal rope graphic with missiles, and we didn't have any room in the ROM for animations of walkers falling over. So, like, somebody did bring up the fact, like, if you're going to do the iconic scene, why would you not do it the way that it exists? And he's like, that's just not how... I, I love the idea that you you can't do it because you can't even fit in a second movement for the walkers. Like, we can have walkers, but they cannot fall down. They can flash a bunch and disappear, but that's it, man. <laughs> yeah. And, and, of course, like, this was back when games were these very ephemeral... Um, you know, make a quick 10 bucks or something, however much they cost, you know, um, at Sears, you know, they weren't, they were basically toys. They weren't taken seriously. They weren't like a storytelling mechanism. Like obviously, you know, now we've got something like Battlefront 2 that is basically like, uh, you sit down for five hours and play like a, a canonical Star Wars film in interactive form. Right. Um, back then it was, they, they took, you know, the software into Lucasfilm. They demonstrated the game, what it was, what it did. And Lucasfilm sort of nodded and said, you know, looks good and it's approved. And, you know, that's not the way that a Star Wars game would get made today. Very different atmosphere today. I, I do love the wording of that where uh, they sit down and, and say it. And, uh, and he said, uh, I flew out to California. Uh, they were very nice and understood the limitations of the 2600 and thought it was good. Like it's, it's such a, like they saw it and they're like, I know that this, that like, at least they're smart enough to be like, that is the, uh, we know that is the best you can do. <laughs> sure. We yeah. have no further notes here that, uh, that, that weird squid shape looks like a Walker, uh, things move and there are colors and lights. Kids will buy it. It's fine. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, it's funny, like, because those would have been guys who um, were basically founding ILM at the time or had just founded ILM, like, you know, two or three years prior or something. And so they, you know, they were sort of the architects of the future of what, like, computer graphics and special effects would be. So, yeah, they, they probably had a really good sense that, like, yeah, you're not going to do much better than this with an Atari. Um, but if you compare it to... I like to think that they knew that they could have done better, but instead <laughs> they're like, oh, way to go, bud. We're going to put this right on the fridge. We're going to put it on the fridge where everyone can see it. I'm so proud of you, bud. And just gives him a little pat on the head like, Rex, thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. So true, though. Um, yeah, and like, I mean, compare it to other 2600 games that were sort of like side-scrolling shooters with some kind of lore to them, like, uh, you know, Yars Revenge or something. This game looks really damn good. Uh, Parker Brothers also, I believe, did the... Uh, Spider-Man game, like the first Spider-Man video game, and it looks god awful. Um, it just—it's really a wonky, weird artifact of its time. This is sort of like this blue and indigo backdrop. Like you said, you would love to have a painting of it. Like absolutely, it's—it's it's like a work of art. And uh, yeah, I don't know how that was accomplished, other than they said that they like colored out every pixel on like grid paper, and then like used grid paper to, to sort of map the imagery and when they programmed the animation. So I think that like an extraordinary amount of work went into like getting the look right, which sort of foretells like how star Wars games get made today. Like it's a very meticulous process with like, you know, producers and QA people who like there, there are whole teams of people now 
who their whole job is to make sure that a game looks and feels like Star Wars. You know, back then it was just two guys who were like, you know, we really better not fuck this up. <laughs> and, you know, and it was a huge mega hit success for, you know, that modest period of time where, you know, Atari games were these children's toys for the most part. Otherwise, video games were kind of sort of in the MIT, you know, computer lab basement or something. It was like, it was not really a period where home video games were ubiquitous like today, you know, where everybody's playing, you know, Rock Band and FIFA and, and Call of Duty 24-7, right? I, I I like the disgust in your voice when you say FIFA. I feel that way too. <laughs> uh, Amen. It, it, there, there is something about this that it is... Uh, Boy, I have games from four or five years ago that, that I find unplayable now. This is a game that is still like a technically proficient, fun thing with a, like an interesting visual style. It It's frustrating, but it it works. Like if I, I never felt like I died because it wasn't my fault. Uh, it has mm-hmm. like a really interesting, like the, the speed with which it, it, it plays out and the, the way that the camera sort of catches it, which to say even camera and something this early is weird, but like it, uh, it feels good and fun and you can play it just about there's, there's dozens of places where it's, uh, an in-browser game. So you can just Google this and find it almost anywhere and play it with your keyboard, uh, which is probably worth a few minutes of your time. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's good. It's an, it's a game older than I am. Uh, that still functions like it should. And I, I see why it was interesting and it has, you know, if you'd, if you'd coughed up the money for this to own it at home, there certainly is replayability to it. Like it's, it is a fun use of time. (laughs) Yeah. And and historically, is that my highest score for a video game at this point? Oh yeah. Good use of time. It's the nicest thing I've ever heard you say about anything. No, uh, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) No, no, no. Um, no, but what's amazing is, is, you know, like, the thing that we always like come back to is like the sound effects and the music and how, how important those are for star Wars games. Like, like if you didn't have any John Williams theme in a star Wars game, you know, people would think that was really strange and, and unexpected. I did, and even this on, had on, on the, the theme, right? Like even this had the music. Yeah. The music's there, but also uh, a, a a situation can happen where suddenly you are imbued with the force. Yep. Uh, and when that happens, for a few seconds, you're invulnerable, and the music gets uh, in in traditional video games like sort of sped up, uh, and and it's like, oh, now I know that I've I've got the superpower. Where where'd this come from? Uh, and and like, sure, uh, it's so <laughs> weird that that your spaceship has the for- it's fine, it's fine. No one, it it's an arcade game. No one needs to look at that any further. Yeah, I mean, like, Pac-Man had pretty cool music. I, I, it's hard. Galaga probably did. It's uh, it's not coming to me right now. But, I mean, a lot of the games I played on the 2600, they just sort of had these sort of droning, um, you know, radar sound effects, you know, doot, 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 like kind of just nothing beautiful. But, like, this and Pac-Man, like, sound pretty good for, you know, something that was made out of... Um, you know, basically a few computer chips and, and like TV parts and, you know, had wood yeah. <laughs> paneling on it or, or fake wood paneling and just looks like it right. was, you know, something out of 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's uh, it's <laughs> fascinating. Um, 
I would love to know the technical. The game uh, Prey last year brought back a lot of wood paneling on sci-fi stuff, uh, which I yes. really appreciated. Oh yeah, that has great art direction. Um, I wish, I, yeah, I wish I had like finished that and enjoyed it more <laughs> because it was so beautiful to look at. I need to, I need now to give that. Finish Prey. I know. I need. I need to pick it up again. Oh, it was so. It was so up my alley too. I just haven't uh, gotten around to finishing it, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would love to know the technical challenges involved in things like, um, you know, the ATATs are going one direction because they're going toward the base, but the snow speeder can go left and right, up and down, and like if you continue to go one direction, you're like sort of going in a circle, right? Like you would see in the film how they sort of uh, swoop around and come in for another run or whatever, so to speak. Like um, that all happens in the game where you know you go. Like in something like Mario with the side scrolling mechanic or whatever, the framing, like you, you can't go all the way to one side a lot of the time. And then it sort of the game limits what you can do. But in this, if you go off, off the screen, one direction, you just sort of swoop back from the other side. Right. And you kind of, it sort of simulates the idea that you're going around in circles, looping around this ATAT the way that they do in the film. So I don't know. Technically, it seems really impressive for for when it you know came out compared to you know something like Donkey Kong, for instance. Right. <laughs> but then uh, that's probably. A, do you have anything else to add about this? Oh no, just that you know it was like it was doing more than the graphics could almost communicate. Right, like the the graphics kind of don't do justice to some of the you know, things like the little flashing weakness that's like a pixel wide and things like that. So it's, uh, it's fascinating. It is truly, it is truly the conversion of, of having a hit point, uh, the size of, of a womp rat. Uh, yeah. And, 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 it, and it's interesting that that was there. Like he says in the interview, like we put that in so that like it was a shooter game where if you were actually really good at the game, you, you know, it translated into something. So like there, there are definitely people out there that are just real good at hitting that pixel and knowing when it comes. And like, that's, you know, I often forget that people make games for people that are good at games with those elements because I never see them because I'm so awful at games. So (laughs) especially shooters like I'm, I was not good at this. I did not see any. We we asked before we asked each other before the the show started. Like, hey, was there a victory screen? Like, (laughs) neither of us were going to see it. Uh, I I think that there is one a la like basically breaking the game like in Pac Man, but like uh, uh, that's from a YouTube video I saw. Maybe a, everything else is just at some point the planet blows up around you, or you're you're all dead, and that just makes the sky flash red. And like, all right, well, and. I, I understand what the red flash means. I <laughs> yep. wasn't good at this. Yeah, but do give it a try. I mean, yeah, you can play this thing for three minutes and kind of get the experience, and and it's worth it. It's it it is the first Star Wars video game, and it it was made you know not by Lucas Arts. You know, Lucas Arts at the time was just Lucasfilm Games, and they you know they weren't they weren't working on Star Wars yet. They they just sort of uh, like you said, you know patted him on the back and said good job buddy well done and uh yeah it looks good it is it is interesting I, i'm glad that we went back to cover the very first star wars game because uh while this is like basically the same frame of gameplay on an, on a loop until you lose uh i have a feeling that we're gonna play much worse games than this yep absolutely yeah <laughs> like there's this this it, it worked 
it it was fun and and then it was over uh i i feel like we're gonna sink many hours into things that do not work and are not fun uh, <laughs> and, and I, this is this is now the bar is it better or worse than the very first thing made in 1983 uh <laughs> Some of these games are not going to meet up to that. I love I love the choices that I make and things to do podcasts about and the, and the commitments I make rather than spending time with my family and cats. Uh, <laughs> it's so fun. Uh, so I'm Brock Wilbur, online at Brock Wilbur, all these places. Uh, you can check out my other podcasts. Just search my name on iTunes. Got some fun political stuff and other video game things and so on and so forth. Alex, where can people find you? I'm at Alex J. Kane at Twitter mostly. Got some stuff coming out at StarWars.com and Polygon in the next month or two. Um, that's it. I, I, I've got to ask you off air what you've got coming out because your things are always big and exciting and my things are always stupid. Uh, oh, I'd like to thank our editor Terrence Wiggins uh, on Twitter at the Black Nerd. Hire him to edit your podcast. He good. He's so good. He's such good boy. Yes. Uh, and you can uh, support him and uh, his writing uh, as well. You follow him. Follow him and all the stuff that he does. We'll eventually have him on the show to talk about some sort of Star Wars thing that I'm sure he won't want to. It'll be great. Yes. Uh, this has been X-Wing in it. Uh, guys, uh, please leave a review. Tell us what you think about the show. Please uh, tell a friend. Uh, and thank you so much for giving us some of your time. We, we did maybe five times the amount of uh of episode today as i thought we were gonna do <laughs> i was like you know what we'll probably just say like it's an atari game and and that'll be it turns out we 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 made we made real good content here i feel good about this episode i do too uh thank you guys for listening bye thanks so much